So let's focus our attention on the text, Galatians 3, verse 10. If you're physically able to stand, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Galatians 3, 10. For as many are the, of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Galatians 3.10, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You may be seated. Father, we are grateful for your living word and grateful for Paul's treatment of the gospel here. It seems like so many times in life, the reason that we have to give the clarity we need is because there's confusion. And this particular topic we cannot be confused on. There's been many gospel distortions as we open the book looking at that subject. Many uh, ways in which we can become confused and even disheartened, thinking that our performance is what is needed. But what we find in these verses, Lord, is the great idea of substitutionary atonement, the exchange of Christ's perfect righteousness for my sinful shortcomings. And the love of God put on display at a cross. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the majesty of your love for us, the fact that you are holy, but you've made a way for your people. And I pray that you would just drive this point home so we can be truly free, serving you and sharing the good news with others, the blessing with others. We ask that you'll guide us that you'll be glorified in what we do and say. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. Many of you have uh, read or seen the C.S. Lewis movies or novels, one of which is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And that movie came out uh, a couple years back, maybe more than a couple years now. And uh, it was great to see that story captured in film. And the one thing that we learned about the land of Narnia, this... Uh, land that C.S. Lewis came up with, is that it's always winter and never Christmas. And the reason that it's always winter and never Christmas is because Narnia is under a curse. And it, the land has been cursed by the White Witch, this evil character who freezes people in her courtyard. You might remember that uh, you know, in, when we get introduced into the courtyard scene, there's all these frozen creatures there stopped in mid-action as they've been cursed by the White Witch. But there's a hope that brews in Narnia, and there's a prophecy that's been written that when some humans show up, sons of Adam, uh, uh, into this land, both male and female, then Aslan, the savior figure in the movie, will come to undo the curse, to, to deal with the white witch once and for all. And that's the setting of the wardrobe, as little Lucy, you know, investigating in a game of hide-and-seek, 
finds her way into this, you know, magical land of Narnia. This may be uh, probably how a lot of us understand the idea of a curse. We probably can't remove ourselves from Disney movies and <laughs> stories about witches and and maybe even some of you have dabbled uh, maybe in your previous life into the New Age or uh, witchcraft or even Wicca where there's these ideas of curses. And what, what is a curse from the biblical perspective? Well, a curse is introduced to us way back in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, scholars call Genesis 3 the curse or the fall chapter. And there Adam and Eve were given one tree, just one, <laughs> that they were told, don't eat of it, lest you die. And they had access to all the other trees, fruit to their heart's content. But you know how we are. It says wet paint on the bench, but we're not sure we believe it. <laughs> and so there's Adam and Eve right next to the forbidden tree, and she takes of the forbidden fruit, of course, deceived by the deceiver. Adam takes a bite and plunges the human race into sin and separation and ultimately death. You know, the rest of the Bible is really about the hope of a coming Redeemer through a nation, Israel, where he will be born from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Redeemer will come to reverse the curse. But in the meantime, we watch a nation try to live by God's law. Amen? They come up out of Egypt. God gives them uh, the commandments. And by the time Moses is getting the law up on the mountaintop, the people are dancing. They've made a golden calf. They say, we don't know where Moses is. This is the God who led us out of the land of Egypt. And you're like, no, don't do it. <laughs> but they did it. And God, in a famous line of Moses, says, your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Don't you love that? So there they are. They've broken all of the commandments and they continue to show this idea of the curse. We just can't seem to live up to the law. When we hear the word curse, it's important that you and I, to understand it, contrast it with the word blessing. If you want to understand what a curse is, you have to understand what the blessing is. And we looked at the blessing in verses 6 through 9 of this same chapter. A definition to be blessed means to be the recipient of all the divine love, grace, and mercy bestowed on us who are in Christ Jesus. Paul identifies this blessing with justification by faith or being saved by God's grace through faith. And all the blessings that go, on, go with that. So you could say fruitfulness in your life. You could say freedom salvation, the burdens lifted off your shoulders, all that it means to be blessed, amen? And we talked about one of the best ways that we can share the blessing with others is to give them the gospel. A lot of you guys are uh, familiar with computer games or maybe you play uh, games on your computer. Imagine that you played a game where you were able to identify people who were saved and who were not. The saved had a B over their head for blessed, and the C had a, the, the cursed had a C over their head. Wouldn't it make uh, witnessing a little bit easier? Let's see, that person needs to hear the gospel, that person's okay. But you know what? That is actually the categories, biblically speaking, even though it might be hard for us to fully understand, 
You're either blessed or cursed. To be cursed means to not be the recipient of divine grace. It means it has these ideas, back to Genesis 3, of barrenness, of unfruitfulness. And ultimately, it speaks of being under the condemnation of God. See, cursedness ultimately speaks of condemnation. And when we witness to people, even though this is hard for some of us to go there, people are condemned already. If you're taking notes, write down John 3.36, where it says that people are condemned already because they have not believed in the only means of salvation, Jesus Christ. Now you might be asking, well, how is it that we uh, have to have these categories so tightly put this way? Isn't there a third option? Can't God grade on a curve? <laughs> That's what we'd all like. And, and, you know, perhaps we'd like that. At least the world says that. It can't possibly be that these are the only two categories. You're either, you either know Christ and you're on your way to heaven or you're not. Isn't there a third or a fourth option? But one of the reasons we struggle with this is because we don't realize how holy God is. It was for one sin that Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. One sin. And what that uh, banishment ultimately brought in these words in Genesis, and we can see them in Ezekiel and other places, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. God said, don't touch that tree because in the day you eat of it, you will die. And Adam and Eve are banished from the garden and separation, sin and separation come into the world. It is sin that separates us from God. And if we're separated from God, we cannot be blessed. Amen? Because he is the source of blessing. Now the Judaizers came into Galatia, into the Galatian churches and said, no, no, if you're a Gentile, a non-Jew, and you hear the gospel, okay, fine, but you, you've got to be circumcised now. You've got to keep the food laws. You, you've got to come under the Torah to be saved. And Paul says, no, you don't. In fact, if you peek back to chapter 1, remember these strong words from Paul, verse 6, Galatians 1, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you, by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, Galatians 1.7, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, he is to be, what's your Bible say? Accursed. That's the Greek word anathema, and if you were with us in the opening chapter, we explained to be anathematized or to be anathema is to be under the divine curse, under the curse of God. So why would anybody share with a group of people, oh, you just need to keep the law to be saved. But do you know that most of the world's religions today preach that very message? If you just do enough good things, if your good works outweigh your bad works, if your karma is positive and you send it up into the universe. And some of you know that books were flying off the shelves in the last 10 or 20 years, and all of them had to do with the universe and what you throw up into the universe, you'll surely get back. 
And people were selling books like The Secret and other books like that. And all you got to do is speak your own reality. So if you're broke, you just start talking to your wallet. And you say, wallet, even though I don't see any money in there. There was a Golden Spoon gift card that just fell out of there. Did anybody see that? Anyway. <laughs> That's for later. Uh, uh, even though there, there is a, I'm going to speak to my wallet. You're just a big fat wallet filled with 20s and 100s and 50s. <laughs> it hasn't worked yet for me. This high idea of, you know, just doing enough good or setting up good vibes into the universe. Have you ever thought that one through? Who is the universe? Where did it get personality? But intellectual and maybe even well-meaning people buy this stuff. These books fly off the shelf. And what they appeal to is human performance as a means to an end, usually prosperity, right? And there's forms of this that are flying off the shelves in so-called Christian circles. But what is the gospel? What does the Bible say about how to be truly blessed? How to be right with God? Well, verse 10 says, As many as are of the works of the law are what? Are under a curse. Paul's going to give us four Old Testament scriptures. For it is written, if you're interested, this is the single Greek word, gegraptai. It is written, Cursed is everyone who does not Abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. If you have an ESV, it says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Now let me pause for a second. Paul is not saying that he's against the law. In fact, later in Galatians 5, and we can see this in Romans 8, Romans 13, we are expected to keep the law. But the expectation of keeping the law is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? You can't love the way you're supposed to love unless you have God's power. You see, we can keep the law, or at least the essence of the law, by the power of God. But we can't do it without God's power, and we certainly can't do it to be saved. Because if you fall in one point of the law, James 2.10 you are guilty of what? All of it. Now you say, but that doesn't make sense. How could that be? The reason is, scholars say, because the law is a unified whole. It is not simply uh, something that you can just chop up. The essence of the law, if you, if you go from the 613 commandments and subcommandments given to Israel, you take them down to the 10 commandments, which summarizes the law, then you take them down to two. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when you break the law, you break the essence of the law. That's why to break one commandment is essentially to break the whole. Everybody with me? Because there are a unified, uh, there's a unified message in the commandments is what you could say. It's really all about just a couple of things. And let me ask you. I'll ask myself, have you loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time? <laughs> have you loved your neighbor as yourself? I just dropped this golden spoon gift card. I wasn't thinking about any of you. <laughs> Guilty as charged. I was just thinking about what I was going to get from the machine and my little sprinkles. 
Now, if I was truly spiritual, I'd be thinking about you. (laughs) This is the problem, right? As much as we want to, as much as often we do hit the mark, we miss the mark. Now, everybody stay with me. This idea of the law in Jewish circles is captured in one word called Torah. T-O-R-A-H. Torah. That's the word for law in Hebrew. Torah means the teaching, the instruction. But ultimately, Torah in the Hebrew picture language means to hit the mark. To hit the mark. So imagine... Let's say that you went to a basketball game. Let's say you went to the Lakers game and they picked you out of the crowd for that half-court shot. Seen that before? You, take, you get one shot from half-court and you can heave it up there and if you make it, you win a million dollars. That'd be cool, huh? But one shot at it, half-court, that, that's hard for a pro to make a half-court shot, let alone you, Right? But let's say that you, you get the magic ticket and you're brought to half court to take the one shot for a million dollars. Now, there's people that make it. But imagine that you had to make that shot ten times in a row. Imagine that you had to make that shot every day, ten times a day, for the rest of your life. Imagine if you miss the shot, they kill you. Imagine if a guy with a revolver says, you make the shot, you live. You miss the shot, you die. (laughs) I mean, the illustration might break down somewhere along the line, but that's kind of what's happening here with the law. You could talk about you're a baseball player, and every time you get up, you have to hit a home run. We know the best players are batting 340, 350, 300 is considered, and that's failing 7 out of 10 times. Walk that out to a dart game. How many times can you hit the bullseye? See, Torah means to hit the mark, to hit the mark, to hit the mark. And a lot of us hit the mark a good amount of the time. The problem is we miss the mark. And the, to miss the mark is the essence of the word sin. See, that's the problem, is that I don't always hit The mark. I don't always make the shot. I don't always hit a home run. I wish I could, but I can't. I fall short of God's standard of perfection. And Jesus comes on the scene and preaches one of the most famous sermons called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. People think that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus telling us how we should live. Oh, that's part of it. But part of his purpose in the Sermon on the Mount is to show you that you don't really understand the depth of the law. You've heard it said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look with lust. You've heard it said you should not commit murder, but I say to you, if you hate your brother in your heart, you're a murderer. And one after the other, Jesus begins to reveal the depth of the law. See, the law is not simply just about how I look at other people's eyes, the law is truly a searchlight into my heart. And the closer I get to God's holiness, the more I realize how many times I've missed the shot. How many times I have fallen short of God's standards. So Jesus shows up, and he begins to show people what it looks like to truly live the way God intended us to live. 
See, the Judaizers may have been using this verse for the Gentile converts. You've got to keep the law. We can quote scripture. But Paul turns the tables and says, Don't you realize that as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse? Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. If you're taking notes, uh, this is a quotation from Deuteronomy 27, 26. There are some who believe it's supplemented with Deuteronomy 28, 58. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now, I'll save you the time for a second, but you can go back and look at this. If you read Deuteronomy 26 through 30, you'll see that the people of Israel are about to enter the promised land, and Moses is speaking to the people, and he's talking to them about when they cross over. And just to kind of summarize a lot of chapters, this is basically what Moses says. If you obey God's law, you'll be blessed and fruitful and healthy and prosperous, and God will keep your enemies from you. But if you start to worship idols, if you go the other way, curses will be upon you. In fact, in the chapter that I just quoted to you, there are 12 curses pronounced upon Israel if they don't keep the law. Cursed if you do this. Cursed if you do that. Cursed. Blessed if you do this. Cursed if you don't. <laughs> and this is, these are some hard chapters. And you begin to read the list of things expected of Israel, and you realize they blew it on every single count. <laughs> it didn't take long until the peoples of the land began to influence them negatively. It didn't take long until they began to imbibe the false religions of the nations and worship idols and you name it. If you've ever read through it, you know how ugly it gets. You know how even the family chosen by God had so much major dysfunction, so many problems, so many issues. You're like, how could a Messiah ever come from this family? Have you looked at your family lately? <laughs> Sorry, anyway. <laughs> don't look at anybody right now, we don't. You see, the moment that you rely on the law instead of faith, you place yourself under a curse. The preposition under hupo in Greek is connected with the law. This writer says either directly or indirectly. A total of ten times in Galatians, in each occurrence, it expresses a situation of being under the authority or power of that which it modifies. In Galatians 3.22, it's under sin. 3.23, under the law. 325 under a pedagogue, 42 under guardians and trustees, under the basic principles of the world, Galatians 4.3. To be under is literally to see yourself as under the weight of something, imprisoned by it, under its power and authority. Always winter, never Christmas. I need a savior. Anybody else feel cold? You see, this is the world without a Savior. This is the world trying to perform the law without the grace of God, without a perfect one, without a Redeemer. We miss the mark. You say, but if the law is holy and good, why would it be an issue to challenge people like this? The issue is if you challenge people that you get saved this way, because you put people in a position where they could never do it. 
The reason it puts you under a curse is because you can't keep the law. Not in its entirety. Not in the inward parts. Not consistently enough to meet the demands of a holy God. Now, that no one is justified by the law, note that in verse 11, no one, no exceptions, not even Abraham, is justified by the law before God is evident. For it says, the righteous man shall what? Live by faith. See the phrase shall live in verse 11? That's the idea of eternal life. It's not so much how the man walks out his life, it's his trust in God. He shall live by faith. Abraham, held up as an example in 6 through 9, was a man who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The second scripture Paul quotes here is Habakkuk 2.4. Now if you've ever read the book of Habakkuk, it's only three chapters. And if you read it later on, you can tell your friends, I read a whole book of the Bible yesterday. Take you about five minutes to read Habakkuk. And one of the things that scholars say about Habakkuk is God is predicting the Babylonians are going to take the southern kingdom and Habakkuk trusts the Lord through it all. In fact, it says, uh, he will continue to trust the Lord even if the fig tree does not blossom and vines are lacking fruit. Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18. Habakkuk is a paradigm of a man of faith even in the midst of judgment. Paul says this verse proves that the righteous man shall live by faith. Here's a quote. Faith is not a blind thing, for faith begins with knowledge. It is not a speculative thing, for faith believes facts, which are sure. It is not an unpractical, dreamy thing, for faith trusts and stakes its destiny upon the truth of revelation. Faith is the eyes which look Faith is the hand which grasps. Faith is the mouth which feeds upon Christ. Look at verse 12. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. Good master, good teacher, what shall I do? What good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? He runs up to the Lord, wealthy, prosperous. What a great question. Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God alone. Jesus is not denying his deity, just showing the man the standard. He says, you know the commandments. He quotes some of the commandments. What's the rich young ruler say? All these I've kept from my youth up. What do I still lack? Jesus says, you want to know? Okay. Go and sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor. Follow me and you'll have treasures in heaven. What did the rich young ruler do? Okay. I'll have a garage sale Saturday. Uh-uh. You know what he did? His face fell and he walked away sorrowfully because he had great wealth. Now, the rich young ruler is an example of a man who wasn't keeping the commandments, his God was mammon. Jesus attacked his God. You think you keep the commandments? Okay, let's talk about your deity. Let's talk about the God that you truly worship. Go and sell your God. Give your stuff to the poor and follow me, and then you'll have true treasure. 
rich young ruler, uh-uh. You see, once our God truly gets exposed, now we got to deal with what we truly worship. And all God's people said, ouch. Right? See, this is what the law does. This is what Jesus, God in human flesh, does. When he talked to people, he was able to see through all the stuff and get right to the heart of the matter. Paul's words are not a rejection of the goodness of the law, for the law comes from God. Paul's words are a rejection of our goodness. The teachings of the, in the synagogues of that time taught that, one, God had revealed himself once and for all and exclusively in the Torah. Two, man has his relationship with God in his relationship with Torah. Three, the aim of Torah, as Gutbord continues, is to show man what he should do and not do in order that, obedient to the Torah, he may have God's approval, righteousness, and life in the future world. Jesus shows up on the scene. The religious leaders, so big on Torah, so big on Abraham, Jesus says, they sit in the chair of Moses. Do what they say to do, but don't do what they do, because they don't do what they preach. See, Jesus knew everybody's heart. He goes into the temple area where it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. What did it become? A money-changing industry. And Jesus turned the tables over. Why? To show what was really going on. Here's the problem. We just can't live up to the law's demands. The law's gaze renders one guilty and thus under a curse. Each scripture Paul quotes reveals another facet of this reality. You say, well, what do we do? If that's the case, remember the disciples at one point in Jesus' ministry said, said, then who can be saved if this is the way things are? Well, with man, impossible. But with God, how many things are possible? All things. Even our salvation. Now we get to the answer to the crisis and the curse. Christ, what did he do? 13, he redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, here's another scripture quotation, Deuteronomy 21-23 is the quote. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You guys remember the book of Esther when Haman, he was from the 70s, Haman. Uh, anyway, he, uh, some of you got that. Some of you had too many pancakes, that's all right. Uh, so remember he hates Mordecai. And he, he finally sets this up so that Mordecai can be hung on the gallows. But... In an interesting twist of events, he, Haman, ends up on his own, his own hanging instrument on the gallows. And it's not pretty. When they would do this to somebody and they would put them on display, it was typically after you were killed for a capital crime, they would hang your body on a tree as a warning to anyone who would break the law. Deuteronomy 21.23 says, Cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree. 
This is part of the reason why the religious leaders said to the people, He cannot be the Messiah, for He is on a tree. Deuteronomy 21, 23. Therefore, He is cursed. And in one sense, they were right. In fact, if you read enough on this, scholars will call this an exchange curse, where Jesus becomes cursed in our place so that we don't have to experience the curse. In the original movie, uh, The Exorcist, there's a story about a couple of priests who try to deliver the girl Reagan in the movie, and it's a terrible uh, situation and powers of darkness and everything, and this is, this is Hollywood, but here's what happens at the end of the movie, and it illustrates the point. There's a young priest who gets involved, and finally the demon, you know, he's wrestling with the demon, and he says, if you won't release her, take me! Take me! And his face begins to change as the demon invades his body, and he, he goes running, and he, and he crashes through a window to his death. Now that's Hollywood. But it illustrates a point, and here's the point. Jesus takes the curse. He absorbs the curse. He drinks the poison. He's treated on the cross as though he had committed my sin and your sin, though he was perfectly innocent. Some of you have been studying the book of Job with us on Wednesdays. And the book of Job is confusing to a lot of people, and they're wondering, why did God do this to Job? I don't get it. And we've called the whole series The Problem of Evil and the Power of the Gospel. This is extremely important to understand about the book of Job. Job is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Job is an innocent sufferer. God says he's a righteous man. He's one of the greatest men of the East. He has compassion on people. He's, he's a, a man of worship and prayer and righteousness. He's blameless when it comes to the outward keeping of the law. And Job begins to suffer in that book. And it's because Satan... Uh, wages an attack that God allows. And in chapter 30, we studied this Wednesday night, Job has gotten so low in his life that the lowest people of society, as he sits on the ash heap in suffering and agony, they walk by and spit in his face. They have songs about him. Oh, Job the joke. Look at you. Spitting in his face. They have circles around him. They sing these songs day and night. And Job is so weak, he cannot defend himself. He has gone from the heights of blessing and prosperity to the depths of the ash heap so that the lowest dregs of society have fun and sport mocking Job. And he says, oh God, where are you? Oh God, what have I done? Job is a picture of of the greater Job, Jesus, the ultimate innocent sufferer. In order to make sense of the book of Job, you have to see the idea that Job is a foreshadowing of Jesus, the ultimate innocent sufferer, and that's a big thing, a big theme of the book of Job is this idea of redemptive suffering. The Redeemer came to suffer in our stead. Christ suffered for us the just for the unjust, 1 Peter 3.18, in order to bring us to God. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus did for us. Christ rendered perfect obedience to the law. He kept it, I'm quoting, in every jot and tittle. He failed in no respect. 
He fulfilled God's law completely, perfectly, and absolutely. Not only that, he has dealt with the penalty meted out by the law upon all sin and upon all sins. He took your guilt and mine upon himself. He bore its punishment. The penalty of the law was meted out upon him. And so he so honored the law completely, positively, and negatively, actively and passively. There is nothing further the law can demand. He has satisfied it all, close quote. Aren't you glad? See, last Sunday we talked about how we get the righteousness of Jesus credited to our account. And it's because of his perfection, because of his sacrifice, because he's on the cross experiencing the judgment that I deserve. And one of the best ways to try to get your arms around this is to trade places for him, with him for a second and realize that what he goes through is what you're supposed to go through. What he experiences from the judging hand of the Father is what I'm supposed to experience. Why is he there? Why does he allow it? Why does he take the curse? Why does he take the judgment that I deserve? One reason. For God so loved the world that he gave. This is the love. The law demands. This is the love I rarely give. Take a look at our culture today. How desperately does our culture need to see the implications of the gospel? Amen? How desperately do our marriages need to see the implications of the gospel? See, it's one thing to know the gospel intellectually. It's one thing to know it and have received it into your heart. It's another thing to walk out what the gospel means. Oh, wait a minute now. Are we getting legalistic? No. We're just talking about what should happen once we've met this great Redeemer. Once his spirit begins to move in our lives. Christ redeemed us from the curse. He became a curse. The word redeemed is a word commonly used to, of buying a slave's freedom. Flip over to chapter 4 for a second. Take a look at verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born Here's that word again, under the law. So that he might redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. See, the winter that Israel experienced was broken by the fact that they saw a great light, Jesus Christ coming into the world. The moment he came into my life and I realized what the gospel was, I'd grown up in a system where, frankly, I thought that God was mad at me most of the time. And I tried to live my life performing, doing the right things, and eventually I just kind of waved the white flag and I went my own way for a number of years. And I walked into a, a church like this and heard the gospel and realized, you know what, someone else did it for me. 
Someone else has adopted me or wants to adopt me into his family. Someone else has paid the ransom, took the curse. I can be free. What a remarkable twist to this story. One writer says it's almost a good illustration is thinking about someone who was going under heart surgery and the heart surgeon in the midst of the uh, procedure realizes that this person's heart's not going to make it and they're going to die and there he makes a decision, does the surgeon, to give that person his heart. That's what Christ is. He's the ultimate doctor. And he says, I'm going to do for you what you can't do for yourself. This is hope for sinners. This is hope for you and for me. Because we've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. Final verse. Christ uh, bore mankind's curse on the cross in order that in Christ Jesus, key phrase, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, that's kind of where we started in the chapter, might come to the Gentiles so that we, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. How's it come to you? Through faith. How do you join Abraham's family of people credited with the righteousness of God? How do you come to a place where you are right with God. Remember in the Chronicles of Narnia, Edmund, the little annoying brother, always getting in trouble. Kind of a smart aleck, Edmund. And Edmund ends up in the land of Narnia and gets deceived by the white witch. When she realizes who he is, she deceives him with, of all things, Turkish delight. Anybody ever had Turkish delight? Anyway, if it's something like candy, we all realize how powerful that deception could be, right? And so, oh, climb up into my sleigh. Oh, what, what would you like? Turkish delight, yes. And as he eats the Turkish delight, he begins to expose his brothers and sisters. And Edmund, all of a sudden, thinks he's got a great deal from the white witch. He's going to get to serve as king and prince. Uh-uh. Edmund's going to end up in a really bad spot. But all of a sudden, Aslan is on the move. You guys remember the story? Aslan is the lion. I used to play on a softball team called Aslan's Pride. This is a lot of fun. Aslan enters in and he's on the move. He's on the move. And finally, Aslan confronts the white witch and Edmund's there and and and. An exchange has to take place, and he negotiates with the white witch, and all of a sudden, the girls watch as Aslan in the middle of the night gets up and goes with the white witch and just gets completely destroyed. He lays down with all of his power and regalness and majesty and lets the white witch and her cronies do what they want to do to him. They tear his fur off. They you know, do everything dashably, and then finally she takes the knife and plunges it into Aslan, and <laughs> he dies. What is going on here? C.S. Lewis, who was a one-time atheist, who said he was brought into the kingdom kicking and screaming, <laughs> wrote that story. 
And I don't think there's any doubt that we know who Aslan represents. See, he takes what Edmund deserved. And Edmund wasn't the best dude to begin with, right? But Aslan allows himself to absorb the curse. And of course, in the story, there's some magic that the White Witch doesn't really know about. And Aslan rises. I'm going to show you two passages and we're done. First, turn back to 2 Corinthians, just a few pages to chapter 5. Now, this promise of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, coming into our life is how we know we've entered into Abraham's family, or namely, Jesus' family. And here's what 2 Corinthians 5, verse 3 says. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. 2 Corinthians 5, 4. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened because we don't want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, as a pledge, therefore being always of good courage and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. See verse 5 there. God prepared us for this very purpose that we would experience eternal life, redemption of our bodies, and he gave us his spirit as what? As a pledge, a down payment, a guarantee. How do you know that God's going to be true to his promises? You have his spirit. He lives inside of you right now. Finally, all the way to Revelation 22. Revelation 22. The final chapter of our Bible says these incredible and encouraging words. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, 22.1 of Revelation, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face, And his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. And there will not have need of the light of the lamp nor the light of the sun. Because the Lord God will illumine them. And they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. This morning I was listening to J. Vernon McGee and he was talking about, I didn't know this about J. Vernon McGee, but I guess he had lost a little girl um, somewhere along the line. I I don't know the full story, but he said that she's in heaven and that does his heart good. And he said, if you offered me a million dollars, I would never invite her back here if I had that power. And he said, you know why? He goes, I know this city, he's talking about L.A., I know it pretty well, and I wouldn't want her to come back here if she's looking at the face of God right now. Don't want her coming back to L.A. (laughs) Everybody know what I'm talking about? 
You look around at this world, there's some wonderful things to celebrate, but there's a lot of cold, hard realities in this world. In the last uh, several Sundays, a man named Bob, in his 90s, he strolled down here with a walker, kind of bent over from years in life, took care of his wife for many years. He went home to be with the Lord just a few days ago. Every time Bob walked into a Bible study, and I know his life was hard, every time he walked down this church, I know he had a lot of pain in his body. You know what Bob had? A smile. And Bob is absent from that body and at home with the Lord. See, the curse will be no more because Jesus absorbed the curse. This is not only about now. Abundant life now. This is about the life to come. This is about all our hopes and dreams. This is about heaven. This is about redemption. This is about a glorified body. This is about seeing loved ones again. This is about the restoration of all things that were lost in the fall. Amen? And our great hero, Jesus, is our great Redeemer. Father, thank you so much for uh, all that these texts mean to us, the living word of God, the things that you've promised. Thank you that Paul illustrates it so beautifully for us by your Holy Spirit so we can see the promises of God. Can't help but think of a lonely figure on a cross absorbing the penalty. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I think, says it best when it says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, thank you for taking my place. Thank you for absorbing my punishment. Thank you for taking the curse to the cross. Thank you for buying us, for buying me out of the slave market of sin. Thank you for everything that means to me, my family, our future. Thank you for this precious church body, Lord. Thank you for their passion for the gospel, the passion they have for truth. I pray that these truths that are the, really the foundation of our faith would encourage hearts today, refresh faith, renew passion for the gospel, Lord. And if you're here and you've not met this great Savior, you thought you could do enough good things to earn your way, you just can't. Why not just cry out to him to save you right now? If you're not sure you're a Christian, it's just something this simple. It's already been paid. You just got to make it your own. Lord Jesus, please save me. Pray it if it's you. I understand the cross. I understand the curse. I understand what you did for me. Thank you. I turn away from my sin and I place my trust in you. Be my Lord, my Savior, my God, my King. Make me part of your family. Grant me your Holy Spirit so I can be born again into your family that I can have the guarantee of my future in you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?